You are listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Michelle Carr. guys uh we are in this series on the kingdom and the kingdom is a really big topic (laughs) so when robin first mentioned to me if i wanted to do this i was like yes and then i started thinking about what i should talk about and i was like it's really hard to narrow down what to what to say about the kingdom. Because in many ways, almost every message could come back to being about the kingdom. But as I tried to center in on something, a lot of the parables talk a lot about the kingdom, but Jesus himself really is our first and greatest example of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. The way that he interacted with people, the way that he spoke the way that he lived. Simply the person of Jesus is our best example of the kingdom. And so over the last few months, as we've been uh, in small group, kind of walking through the book of John, I've been revisiting some of our most well-known stories about Jesus. And so I want to start there and try to connect some dots that... uh, (laughs) circle back around to what it means to live in the kingdom. I want to start with John 8, which is a very familiar story about the woman who was caught in adultery. And it says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them that he is Jesus. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, and, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So I want to set the scene a little bit, kind of find the humanity to connect with in this story. Um, What you have is Jesus in the temple with all the religious leaders. And the center of religious activity would effectively be a Sunday morning church service and our most tangible connection. And these religious leaders go and find a woman And they drag this woman out of the very act of adultery and they drag her into the center of church. 
to use her as a pawn to try and trick Jesus into breaking the law. Like that's the, that's the undertone of what is happening there. They want a reaction out of him. They are trying to bait him. And Jesus does not take the bait. Instead, he leads, first of all, this woman into a profound encounter with the kindness of God. And that's the first thing that, that I want to establish for the entirety of what I'm saying here is that Jesus is kind to us. God is kind. It is one of, I think, the forgotten qualities that maybe we miss in the midst of God's goodness and his grace and his faithfulness and all the things. Like there's a deep kindness, a movement in his heart towards us that is really key to understanding the character of who he is and what it means to live in the kingdom. And so as he's kneeling down in the dirt and doing whatever, writing whatever, and all of this swirl is happening around him, as I was reading this this week, I could like feel the sense of the holiness of his presence resting in that moment. Have you ever been in a meeting or in your bedroom or with a group of friends and you're worshiping and you're talking about God and all of a sudden <laughs> that holy presence just falls down and it's almost paralyzing because it's so, so pure. <laughs> and if you're present with it, if you're into it, if you're turned towards him, then you don't want to move. Like you just want to stay there forever and hope that it never leaves. But if there's something in you that is feeling conviction from that holiness, you're going to be out of that room as fast as you can possibly be because you can't take the power of that conviction. And this is what, what is happening. Like Jesus in all of his authority, holiness himself is saying, which one of you can throw a stone at her? Because which one of you hasn't sinned? And as he says it, all of the authority of his perfection fills the space. And all of those men who have dragged this woman here to say, she's the sinner and we're good to go here. You need to condemn her. They all, one by one, they fall away. And Jesus stands up and sees only her. And she's like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. I mean, imagine the shame of this woman. Imagine the shame of the acts that she was caught in and of itself. Imagine the shame of the life that led her to this. Imagine the shame of, of your darkest, worst moment being exposed to everyone that considers themselves righteous and holy. Imagine the shame that she is feeling and the, the authority of holiness stands up and looks at her and says, where'd they all go? Because I'm the one who could condemn you, but I'm not going to do it. I offer you kindness and I offer you forgiveness. And I say in that place, go and be free from sin. Like that's my kindness to you that I'm not going to condemn you, but I'm going to offer you a way out of the life that you have been living. This is the reality of Romans two verse four, which in the passion translation says, do you realize that all the wealth of his extravagant kindness 
is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance. I love that melt your heart phrase because I think it's a common verse in the, we know, you know, his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. But like when we come in actual contact with the, the manifested kindness of God to us, our hearts are melted. Like he melts our heart. And in that melting, our minds are changed. Our lives are transformed. We turn in a different direction to be more like him. And that's what it means that kindness leads us to repentance. This is the reality that uh, the message is welcome to all. But if we don't interact with the kindness, then the transformation never happens. That is what has to happen for us to truly follow him. There's, there's a level of surrender that is inherent to following after Jesus. And so in this moment in John 8... He's drawn to the brokenness in the woman, and she in turn is changed by that kindness. But he is very firm with the self-righteous and what comes after in the rest of John 8. I'm not going to read it all to you because it's a lot of back and forth, and it's a lot of the Pharisees. I mean, the end of the, end of the verse that I read before, they basically call him a liar. Your witness is not true. He's saying that he's the son of God. He's saying that he's the savior they need. And they are just dug into the ground that they are doing good with the law that they have and with the self-righteous keeping of the law that they are doing and what they are missing and what Jesus is putting the exclamation point in this interaction is that all of you people, all of you Pharisees, you need God. You need me just as much as this broken woman that you dragged here. So they are, they are missing the realities of the kingdom. They are not functioning in kindness at all. They're not receiving the kindness of God to themselves because they're attempting to be something in their own strength. And they are therefore not exhibiting kindness to anyone around them. I don't imagine that, that many people were super drawn. <laughs> There's a reason that people were drawn to Jesus. Let's put it that way. There was a reason that people were drawn to him because he offered something different than what they were used to seeing. People wanted to come after him. But it's undeniable that they were the other side of the coin. They were in as much spiritual adultery to a degree as the actual act of adultery that this woman was in. Um, Matthew 5, 3 is a pretty well-known verse for us as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you read it in the Amplified Translation, it uh, expands a little on what those words mean. Blessed, meaning spiritually prosperous, happy, and to be admired are the poor in spirit, which is those devoid of spiritual arrogance, and those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven both now and forever. I want to clarify that I don't think insignificant is interchangeable with worthless here. It's not, a, I, I want... To be clear at a few points today that you don't hear what I'm not saying. Insignificant and worthless are not the same thing here. 
We have great worth and great value to God. But this definition of insignificant has to do with our self-importance with our desire to promote ourselves above others, with our lack of humility. (laughs) So when we function in true poverty of spirit, what we are actually doing (laughs) is that we are admitting our dependence. We're admitting our dependence on a force outside of ourselves. Um. The Pharisees exhibit every characteristic that is opposite of this dependence. They are full of spiritual arrogance. They seem to think that they are quite significant in the temple that is the center of their world. They cannot admit their need for Jesus, who is the meek and humble savior that they need and not the powerful governmental type leader that they want. And their hearts have been made hard in that place. And they are unable to receive any of that kindness, as I said. And then they're misrepresenting the kingdom to those around them. So um, the common denominator, like I said, in all of this, and I think in what we pull from this, is that we are all in great need of God. (laughs) We are all in great need of God. And dependence is key to that need. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary definition of dependence is a state of needing something or someone, especially in order to continue existing or operating. Dependence means that we cannot actually physically survive without something. And part of the culture of the kingdom of God is that we unashamedly admit that Jesus is the thing that we need to survive. And that his Holy Spirit living through us is key to us getting through the day. So we need his sacrifice on the cross to begin with, but we need the activity of his life in us, leading us into holiness every day. We need the more that comes from engaging with him and depending on him in the everyday ways of life. Dependence is ultimately about letting go of control. And in our good old American 2019 culture, let's be real, we really enjoy independence. We really enjoy doing what we want to do. We really don't like anybody telling us what to do, and we most certainly don't like anyone telling us that we are wrong. Because we all know that any good Facebook debate starts by someone saying something and someone else telling them they're wrong, and then it rolls on for 100 comments afterwards. This is not what the kingdom is like. Um, All of those things that our modern world tells us we need to be in control of are the exact opposite of dependence on Jesus. Because what he talks about in John 3 is what dependence really looks like. Again, this is a very familiar passage to us. 
That's when Nicodemus comes and he is intrigued by Jesus and he is curious. But he comes at night because it's a little controversial to be uh, intrigued by Jesus. And they proceed to have a conversation that includes John 3.16, which is probably our most memorized Sunday school verse that for God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son. Um, and this is also the first time that the concept of being born again is broached. And Nicodemus had never really heard anything quite like this before. And it didn't quite make sense to him. And then he, Jesus goes on in John 3, 7 and 8. He says, you shouldn't be amazed by my statement. You must be born from above. For the spirit wind blows as it chooses. You can hear its sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So it is within the hearts of those who are spirit born. So Nicodemus, mind blown, doesn't understand. We, I would venture to say... <laughs> As Ray Hollenbach mentioned a few weeks ago, born again in our world has been watered down to be primarily and only the prayer of salvation that moves us from team hell and over to team heaven. Now, that prayer is very important. And moving from the one team to the other is, is a key to the beginning of this journey, but it is the beginning of the journey. And I think we could all use a reawakening to the fact that life and following Jesus is not a one-time moment that we did whenever we did it. And then we continue to live the way that we always lived, except that we prayed a special prayer. To be truly born again is to be born from heaven, to be followers of the spirit wind that blows where it chooses. And that's a wind that sometimes is going to blow me to places that my flesh does not want to go. It's going to take me to places where my dependence is only on it because that's when the kindness of God shows up in me and changes me and changes my circumstances. But I have to be willing to submit to it and not control my way out of it. Part of that being born again is that, and part of the kingdom of heaven is that I'm continually adapting and learning a new culture for a place that I haven't been to yet. Culture is one of my pet topics, honestly. I think culture is so interesting because culture, ultimately, it's like the system of beliefs that a place has. It is what is considered normal to you. A church has a culture, a city, a nation, even a family has a culture. And when you grow up in a culture, you assume that that is the way that every single person is because you think it's normal. As you get older and as you experience more of life, you start to realize that not everyone thinks the way that I do. Not everybody's mom folds towels and organizes cabinets the way that mine does. And that does not mean that your mom was inherently wrong because she organized them differently than me. And it's a very simplistic example but that's what culture is and that's why we have culture shock and that's why we go into a new place and we assume that things are one way and we get disillusioned because 
that family has a different culture than the one that I grew up in. And then I have to learn to adapt to something that I don't yet understand. I spent a lot of years, uh, three years traveling to a lot of different countries and experiencing a lot of different cultures very quickly. And it makes your head spin a lot because this is normal to me. I am an American. I've lived in America my whole life. I expect that people understand what I, what that means. The place that, that shook up my cultural understanding the most was actually the UK. Because when you're in Africa, it's inherently understood that Africa is not like America. So I go in with a much more like submissive opportunity to understand something else. But I go to the UK and I think they speak the same language. We are alike. We are not alike, okay? And you sit across the table with someone and you say the same words, but nobody understands each other at all. Like you walk away from the table and you think, I've established this reality. And then a whole entirely different thing happens. And you're like, ah, I don't understand. It's culture shock. It, it's like like a, a change has to happen in both of us. But in ultimately in me, in that case, because I'm entering into their culture. So my point in all of that is that once we're born again, we are living in a new kingdom even though we still exist in this one. And the journey of our lives is to ever be learning more about the kingdom that we're going to live in forever. And in that learning, it means that I am unlearning things that this world has taught me about who I am and who I need to be and how I need to be that person. And it means that I am constantly being born Again, not talking about I need to keep getting saved because I have to make sure that I'm not going to hell. I mean that I'm continually relearning and learning more and more and more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus because he is infinite and immense. And there's for eternity going to be new things that I'm learning about what it means to be like him. And, and, and to live in the kingdom here on earth in this reality means that I get to start learning that now. And as I learn, I have to unlearn the things. Like I have to adapt my culture that I have accepted as normal and say, no, my control of every little thing in my life is not actually how things work in the kingdom because in the kingdom, Jesus is in control and I take my cues from him. not about my confidence in my skills or my confidence in my gifts or my confidence in my finances. None of that is reflective of the kingdom. My happy Western idea of what Christianity looks like does not all line up with what the kingdom actually is. Um, all right, I'm going to go a little hardcore now. <laughs> So I'm just warning you <laughs> so that you can go with me and we're going to break through another very familiar passage and point out some things that in my typical hearing about this passage were never pointed out to me. Okay, so we've been giving fair warning. You can track with me for a few minutes. We're going to bring it back around to the kindness of Jesus, okay? 
Revelation 3, uh, 14. The words to the church at Laodicea. And it says, this is from the Passion Translation. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Laodicea. For these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And know all that you do. And I know that you are neither frozen in apathy nor fervent with passion. How I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, I'm about to spit you from my mouth. For you claim I'm getting rich. I'm rich and getting richer. I don't need a thing. Yet you are clueless that you're miserable, poor, blind, barren, and naked. So I counsel you to purchase gold perfected by fire so that you can be truly rich. Purchase a white garment to cover your, uh, to cover and clothe your shameful Adam nakedness. Purchase eye salve to be placed over your eyes so that you can truly see. All those I dearly love, I unmask and train. So repent and be eager to pursue what is right. Behold, I'm standing at the door knocking. If your heart is open to hear my voice and you open the door within, I will come into you and feast with you and you will feast with me. And to the one who conquers, I will give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne, just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the spirit is saying now to the churches. All right, I'm going to kill the elephant in the room first, which is that most of us have heard this passage preached for a long time, and we probably walked away and thought, if I don't manage my sin better, then I'm going to make God throw up. Like, that's often the takeaway of what being a lukewarm Christian means. And we live in fear that we're going to get vomited out of the heart of God. And I cannot get around the fact that the verse is there. And so we have to process that each in in its context. But what I want to bring out is that the context is very different than the way that we have been taught that in the past. Because there's so much of the kindness of God in these words to the church at Laodicea. So I want to pull a few new things out of it. The first thing is that According to Brian Simmons' notes in the Passion Translation, Laodicea itself, like the name of the, of the city, it actually means people's rights. It's made up of two uh, words, which I'm going to butcher because I'm not an original text scholar, but Laos meaning people, Dice meaning ruler decision. So this is a city that was founded on the people's right to make their own decisions. Sounds like a country that I know. It was a wealthy city. And so the people in this church were very financially comfortable for the most part. And they were not in need of a lot of practical things in their lives. But if you read, a lot of their lukewarm behavior had to do with the fact that they we're dealing with a Roman government who is increasingly suspicious of their conversion to Christianity. And so they were making financial choices that were a little shady and a little under the table and un- in order to maintain their financial security while still being part of the church. And 
So that's some of the background on the church of Laodicea. Um, in verse 15, I think where it says, you are neither frozen in apathy nor fervent with passion. It just opens up that hot or cold bit to me in a different way. It means that you're there. Like the people are in church. Like they know the truth. They're, they're in the, in the club, so to speak. Like they've said yes to Jesus. So they're not frozen and hard hearted and cold, but they're not fervent with passion. Maybe they're not fervent with passion anymore. There's something that is missing in their hunger. There's a burning that is lacking in the bottom of their soul. They are not longing for more and more and more of Jesus because they're kind of comfortable. And in verse 18, no, 17, you claim I'm rich and getting richer. I don't need a thing. Yet you are clueless that you're miserable, poor, blind, barren, and naked. Okay, the real indictment here is not that anyone is miserable or poor or naked. It's that they don't know. It's that they do not understand the state of their own souls. As we saw with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, he is drawn to brokenness. He loves brokenness. He came for our brokenness and he exists to reach into our brokenness and make it whole. But the one thing, maybe more than anything, that keeps him from doing that is my insistence that I don't need him to do that because I'm good. I go to church. I'm good. I read the Bible study. I do whatever. Like I fill in the blank of what the thing is that you think makes you good. All of that does not mask or cover your deep need for a savior. And that's the indictment that's brought against the church at Laodicea. You're good, but you don't know how much you need me. Verse, uh, is it 9 or 19? My notes are messed up. But uh, all those I dearly love, I unmask and train. So repent and be eager to pursue what is right. So the reason that I am bringing this up to you is not because I desire to spit you out of my mouth and have nothing to do with you anymore. I am unmasking things that you need to see. In my kindness, I am coming to you and I am shining a light. <laughs> the light that it talks about in John 8, uh, 12. The light that if you embrace it, you will experience life-giving light and never walk in darkness. So the dark, the light comes and it shines on a spot and that's where you have the choice. Like, am I going to embrace the light that is shining? And I'm gonna, am I gonna hold on to it? Am I gonna, gonna admit my need for it? Am I gonna, am I gonna keep my gaze looking at the light or am I gonna turn and peel off back into the darkness because I don't wanna admit that I need that? And to the one who conquers, I will give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne. 
just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, that's a bold statement. That's a bold promise. I will give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne. Jesus is the example of surrender in every way to his father's will. And when I step into that invitation to be like him, which means that sometimes I have to lay down my right to do what I want to do, what he's asking me to do. I then earn the right to sit with him and to rule and reign in the actual fully realized kingdom of heaven one day, because I understand what the kingdom is about because I've learned from him now and I can teach others what that means. Like that's (laughs) the whole point of this is is I'm showing you things so you see now so that you can be better forever. I want to pull you into this. I am not exposing you for shame. I am not exposing you because I don't like you. I am offering you kindness so that you see fully how much you need me. Again, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. None of this is meant to indicate that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God or that we're terrible, wretched, awful people and we need to wallow in self-hatred because we're so bad. Is not at all the point here. Is also not to say that being led by the Spirit means that I get to have no character and no commitment. I get from bounce to place to place to movement to movement and never actually commit to anything and blame my character flaws on the Spirit that is leading me. It's not that either. And we, in general, have a tendency to to swing in one direction or the other. But His kindness melts our hearts and in that melting of heart we repent we change our ways we acknowledge our need for him we acknowledge that depending on him is the way of the kingdom we change our mind and we go after him and then the whole process happens again because as soon as we think we arrived we have to <laughs> we have to unarrive and go back So all of this is to say that there, I I don't think we need to live our lives in like deep, terrible mourning over our sin. But I do think that in the journey to maturity in God, there have to be moments when I am touched with godly sorrow for the places where I am falling short. Because if I don't feel godly sorrow over my sin, that's the heart melting part. When I feel that sorrow and I still turn to him and he pulls me out of it and things fall off of me that I didn't even know were there. And I walk in more authority than I had before. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. This is what it means to live in the kingdom. I think we... uh, have been through seasons in the church even over the last like 
10 or 15 years where like a big message comes through and and we all jump on board. And that happens because we need those messages. There was a huge move of the Father's heart in the early and mid 2000s where, where like God was clarifying the character of who he is as a father. He's a good father. He's not punishing us. All of that. And that was a very necessary thing that we needed because it's different from what we had heard for much of our lives. And then beyond that, we had a, a movement of grace where we needed to understand <laughs> that my life in God is not about what I earned. That it's freely given that I don't have to work so hard to make him like me, <laughs> that he likes me already and that I don't have to work for it. It just is. Whatever I do or don't do, it is. Love isn't changing. And that is a very important movement. It's a very important reality to grasp in our hearts. But I think that sometimes when the pendulum of grace swings way too far over here, we start to lose sight and lose value for the holiness of God. For what it means to be totally devoted to him. And I feel like in this moment in our nation <laughs> that, that the pendulum is going to swing back a little and we're going to have to come back into a place of healthy holiness <laughs> where, <laughs> where the kindness of God is so apparent to us that it draws me to repentance. That's the kind of kindness that we need to see an actual move of God in our divided really screwed up country right now. Like we need to be walking in the kindness as, a, as the church that melts the hearts of those who are so far away from God. But we have to experience that for ourselves first. We have to have a revival of dependence in the church so that we can be what the world needs in the moment that we live in. I, um, as Robin said, I lived in South Florida for a lot of years. I was there for 15 years. I've been in Charlotte for about a year and a half. And in South Florida, was about, I was about an hour north of Miami, so like very south. In South Florida... Darkness is all around you. It is very visible. Like the darkness is very like out there. The way people dress, strip clubs, the drug, like everything is just out there for everybody to see. So when you're a believer in South Florida, you are very aware all the time that you live in the devil's playground, okay? And it requires of you, some, often to an exhausting degree, it requires you to be very like, fighting all the time for peace, to be very committed, to, to be a little bit hungry. <laughs> and in that, there is actually a unity that comes in, in community and among believers because you need each other to stand against this very overt darkness that is everywhere around you. It's exhausting though, okay? <laughs> and so when I first moved here uh, last summer, in my first few months, I was so blissfully enjoying how peaceful Charlotte is. Like, it's so peaceful. You don't even know. Like, you think your traffic is bad, but it's really not. 
that's wearing off a little because now I'm getting annoyed at traffic and I'm like, I've been here long enough to understand. But comparatively to South Florida, it's so peaceful. Everything is pretty. Everyone is relatively kind to you at the grocery store. It's just a nice place to live. Good coffee, good restaurants. Everybody, like, it's great. It's a great little city. And it was super, super refreshing me to me for, for quite a few months. But the longer I've lived here, the more that I have realized and, and am fighting in my own life that when that darkness isn't so clear and, and obvious to you outside, it is a little bit harder to live hungry. It's a little bit harder to live without apathy. It's a little bit harder to find that fire in your belly that if I don't spend time with Jesus today, I'm not sure that I'm going to make it through the day and all the people I'm going to meet tomorrow. And it's something that, that Jesus is challenging me on on a daily basis right now. And I'm going to admit that I'm not winning the... <laughs> The challenge every day, but I feel like there is there's something specifically for the church in this city that in order for us to wake up and live dependent, we have to shake off the comfort of this beautiful city that we live in. And we need to realize <laughs> that even in this pretty place, I need him. <laughs> I desperately need him. We all desperately need him because the darkness may not be as clear to us, but the darkness is out there. <laughs> and, and we are called to be the light that turns around the darkness. I want to close with one last verse. Um, I read it last week uh, at the end of worship as well. It's 40, Psalm 43, 7. My deep need, is it 43.7? It's 42.7. I wrote it wrong in my notes. Sorry. Uh, Psalm 42.7. My deep need calls out to the deep kindness of your love. Your waterfall of weeping sent waves of sorrow over my soul, carrying me away, cascading over me like a thundering cataract. And I think that... <laughs> is the summary of everything that I have said today is that my deep need <laughs> is calling out to his deep kindness. And those waterfalls and those waves of sorrow that I feel like want to take me under sometimes are simply his attempt to get me <laughs> to surrender. As those waves crash over me and I desperately try to hang on to my version of control and to my version of what makes me feel safe, those waves are coming to remind me of my need for dependence, to remind me how deeply dependent I am on the King of Kings. So Jesus, I ask that in whatever way we need it today, in whatever area of my life that I am asleep, whatever area of my life that I am trying so hard to hold on to, to hold on to my control, to hold on 
to my own attempts to show you I don't need you, that you would just come and that you would rush in, that you would rush in like a wave (laughs) that knocks me off my feet a little bit, (laughs) but that reminds me that you're the one that reaches in and pulls me out. that you are the one who has saved me and you are the one that I need because on any given day, I may be wretched or poor or miserable or blind or naked, but all you came to do was cover those things for me. So let me submit myself, (laughs) surrender myself to your kindness, to your great kindness. so that you would melt our hearts, so that you would melt our hearts and change our minds and change our ways and transform us first and then the people around us who need you just as much as we do. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.